Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Andy Bowman, and with me are my co-hosts, Tessa Suela. Hello. And Sam Morris. Hello. It's time for another Spooktober episode. Sam tells us about a technological dystopian nightmare that isn't the one we actually live in. Tessa luxuriates on a pentagram rug. And I experience a uh, rebu rebuquel. All right, so C- for sea boot, sea boot, sea boot. Okay, okay, a sea boot, <laughs> which is coincidentally what I keep fishing up in Animal Crossing. Uh, a, a boot from the uh, sea. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you play Animal Crossing, you know that that was a top tier joke. Uh, we're we're very impressed. I, I hope so. Okay, so uh, for for this week's discussion questions, because I am watching Halloween 2018, I started thinking like, okay, guys, when there's like a long running series that has a reboot or a sequel or a seboot, do you still start at the first one and work your way up? Right. So there's uh, how many Halloween movies, uh, Tessa? There's how many uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movies? Right. Do you start? There or are you safe just jumping into the sequel? Uh, you know, just jumping into the reboot. I mean, the movie I think that comes to mind for me is the Jurassic Park films. Not that there's a lot of them, but I guess there's more now than there was a couple of years ago. But I had never seen them as a child or a teenager. That was just not something that my family was interested in. So I saw the first Jurassic Park film when I was in my mid-20s. It, it, it actually holds up pretty well for someone who had not seen it before, who didn't have any nostalgic value for it. But then the question became, do I have to see two and three before I saw Jurassic World, which came out a few years ago? So I... I think this is an interesting question. I didn't ultimately see those two because Jurassic World specifically ignores those particular films. <laughs> so I don't know. Like, I think it's a really good question. I think it, for me, the answer just depends on the franchise. Um, there's some franchises where you definitely want to watch the first one because it's the iconic one, like Jurassic Park or Nightmare. But I think you should also probably rely on the people who love those movies um, to tell you where you need to start as well. That's, I guess, a very wishy-washy answer, but that's kind of where I am about this. In keeping with Tessa Lives in Chaos, of course you should start with the first one. Why wouldn't you? Now... Okay, wait a second. Before you go any farther, how many times have I and you or anyone on this podcast been told, don't watch the first season? The first season sucks. Get Start with season two. It, the first season's really rough, but once you get to season two, it'll, it'll be great. What happened uh, to that kind of logic? Well, first of all, I watched the first season of Buffy, and I knew it didn't get good till the second season, but I powered through because I made a commitment. Would I ask anybody to do the same? No. That's fine. <laughs> so, so uh, I'm going to bring up a one that I'm fairly certain that at least me and Tessa did the same thing. I, I Sam, if you are the madman that did this from the beginning, I, I am sorry. Doctor Who. Well, that's different. How is that different? Continuity exists between the the reboot and the original, and it's not really so much of a reboot, just as a uh, unpause. But it is clearly centered as a jumping on point for people, and so it's intended to be a place where you can jump on. And so there's a difference there, and that's why reboots are ultimately maybe good places to jump on because they're intended to be that way. You know, Halloween that you're going to talk about is a sequel, but it's also a reboot. So it's kind of the same thing as Doctor Who. I would say the Jurassic um, World movie might be the same thing. Except for movies like Jurassic World still, like even if, if you haven't, if you have not seen Jurassic Park, there are parts of Jurassic World that you will not understand. Like there are references to specific set pieces that you won't get. 
And I think that's true of a lot of the more recent reboots that have been coming out is that we want to do this like meta winking at the camera for all of the the original fans while also providing a jumping on point for new fans. I mean, it's capitalism, right? It's this idea of we have to appeal to the new audience and the the fans. I I have another uh, another example that does not have anything to do with Tessa's uh, prior list that she did on her list episode. You know the X Men. I'm talking about Superman Returns, the 2005 film that said Superman one and two happened. Superman three and four, no, they didn't happen. I thought you were going to say Star Wars. What about Star Wars? Uh, every the prequel trilogy and the sequel trilogy are both soft reboots that exist in continuity, but are specifically geared to draw new audiences and ultimately fail because they try to do both at once. Okay, first of all, the sequel trilogy was clearly planned out meticulously from the first frame of episode seven to Uh, all the way to the end of episode nine. And you know what? They were probably going with George Lucas's original plan. Oh, so so about that. Andy, okay, I, I got your back on this one. So back when I was, back around the time that I saw Jurassic Park in the theater, which I saw at the day it was released, back around that time, a younger Sam wrote a letter to George Lucas because he had the novelization of the trilogy, and there was this thing called the Journal of the Wills quoted on like the very first page. And so I wrote a letter that I put in the post office and mailed. What's the post office? I know, right? So I said, what is the Journal of the Wills? Do you mean to say that there are more episodes of Star Wars than we know of? And I received a reply from George Lucas' secretary. And she said, I still have the letter all these years later. She said that he had, in fact, planned the entire series from episodes one through nine so every shot every frame he's a true auteur i don't know how he knew carrie fisher would die Uh, when she did i don't understand i I, how did he know that billy lord was going to be an actor how did he know these things he just figured it out he he just knows he used he used Uh, the force george yes george lucas is uh is very force sensitive um (laughs) So, okay, okay. Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with with pretty much what you're saying, Sam. For me personally, I like to start from the beginning, but I also understand things like Halloween, right? You, you talk to people who love Halloween. First of all, Halloween had eight movies originally. Then it had the Rob Zombie sequ- <laughs> uh, sequel reboot attempt. H- uh, in- was, that, was that H2O? No, no, no. That was just Halloween and Halloween 2 in 2007 and 2009. Oh, okay. Uh, And now we have this uh, trilogy. But we also have things like Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which is not a sequel really at all. Because the original plan for the Halloween movies was actually to be an anthology-style series that came out every year on Halloween. That had nothing to do with Michael Myers every year. It just kept going. And that was like the original plan. And then Season of the Witch does that. and. That's why Halloween 4 is called The Return of Michael Myers, and uh, they just go down in quality consistently there. Well, now the title of Halloween makes a lot more sense to me now that you've actually explained that. Uh, I have a question for both of you and, and our listeners out there. Fast and the Furious franchise. Is there a jumping on point for Fast and Furious, or do you have to watch all of them? There is easily a jumping on point in Fast and the Furious, and that coincidentally is actually when The Rock jumped back on in, in Fast Five. No, uh, uh, honestly, it, it's it's a weird thing where they have woven the continuity uh, retroactively. If only there was some kind of word for that, but they... It's called Lucasing, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess it's called Lucasing and it never happened before that in things like comic books or anything. But the character development in the Fast movies is there. It, it, it's built on and you have to start with Fast 1 because you will not appreciate Fast 5 
without realizing that they used to steal VCR and DVD players from cars, and now they're stealing a vault from a drug dealer in Brazil. So I have I have a suggestion about the jumping on point for fast movies, which is my actual jumping on point. Tokyo Drift. Weirdly enough, that was also my jumping on point. You know, what's really funny is that it's it's a good movie. I mean, it not not like like barely good. Like it it like just cla- it just clambers barely over the bar of good. Little Bow Wow is, really shines as <laughs> the star of the movie. But it's actually got a pretty interesting story and and I had no idea and we're not going to talk about it, but I just had no idea about how Tokyo Drift fit into the rest of the movies. But I was interested enough to go back and watch one and two after that. Um, so I would I would suggest that. The one last thing that I'll say about this is the other franchise that comes to mind is Bond franchise. Mm. But I think that Bond as a collection of films, the Bond films, for the most part, I haven't seen all of them. We are slowly working our way through the Bond films. And for those of you who are fans of pop culturists, just know Sam and I are going to be publishing some some joint articles about our rewatch of Bond. So stay tuned for that. I think the Bond films as a collection, you can kind of jump on at different points in that series, especially because Bond has been played by so many different people. And every time, well, most of the time, the only exception I can think of is the George Lazenby Bond. Most of the time, every time they change Bonds, it's sort of a soft reboot. So, And I think a lot of people jumped on, with Daniel Craig especially, but you can sort of go back and say, oh, well, I'm a Pierce Brosnan fan, or I'm a Timothy Dalton fan, or I'm a Sean Connery fan, and sort of start there and then work your way around the series. Yeah, there's a there's a particular era of James Bond movies where they try to establish continuity by using... Uh, Ian Fleming has a continuity in his novels, and I, I dig it. Um, I've written about it. I have been frustrated for decades at this point that they don't just do it, that they don't just do the continuity that Ian Fleming had because it's solid. I had hopes when Casino Royale came out a while back, but they didn't. Um, but they learned pretty quickly that there is no interest in continuity in the Bond movies. They realized that their strength was not serialization. Should we wrap this discussion up and start with the beauty that is Spooktober? I just want to throw out that my first Nightmare on Elm Street movie was The New Nightmare. So I did break my own rule on that one. That's a great one, though. Yeah, well, if you already know what Freddy Krueger is, if you already know the mythos, it's just as good a point as any other. Okay, Sam, what did you watch this week? For Spooktober. I want to say Spooktober as many times as possible in this episode. It's it's fun. Go ahead. Just say it a few more times. You can cut it. Spooktober. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, for this week, I went back to Black Mirror. Um, I wanted to watch either one of the horror anthologies that are available via streaming service or at least the two primary ones. Um, so I chose Black Mirror over the the Bloomhouse series on Hulu, Into the Dark. I just didn't want to commit to feature lengths, although with Black Mirror, some of them are feature length. But So Black Mirror is the British dystopian sci-fi anthology series brought to you by Brits Charlie Brooker and Annabelle Jones. And this is not my first encounter with Black Mirror. I have seen uh, a few episodes. I've seen Be Right Back, which is a classic with Domhnall Gleeson and Haley Atwell. I've seen San Junipero, the one that isn't a dystopian nightmare. I've seen uh, Hang the DJ. And then finally, we watched, not too long ago, the interactive special episode, Bandersnatch. You, you know what? Actually, uh... I, I hate to do this, but going back to the uh, the conversation we just had, <laughs> I I personally recommend Black Mirror, but I say skip episode one. Don't skip episode one. He's wrong. He's wrong, and I will tell you why. Okay. Okay. Um, hey, go ahead. Okay. Let Let's put it this way, Sam. Would you tell your parents 
hey, you'd really like Black Mirror. Make sure you watch episode one because that's a really good episode. Well, I wouldn't tell my parents that, but I would say, hey, Andy, start with episode one. (laughs) Would you tell Andy's parents that? I don't know what I would tell Andy's parents. I would not tell your parents to watch Black Mirror literally at all. So what what episodes did you watch for Black Mirror? That is the good thing about anthology series, right? You don't have to worry about continuity. So the discussion that we had about, you know, movie series isn't as important here. You really can pick and choose. So my methodology was, I want to watch more episodes of Black Mirror. Let me just go to the websites that I trust because they've all ranked them. So I did a little mini episode in my brain of rank that list. And so... San Junipero and Be Right Back are uniformly near the top of everybody's lists. I'd already seen those. I wanted to rewatch them. Time is a precious commodity. So instead, here's what I watched. I watched all of season one, including the national anthem, which is the episode Andy says to avoid. He's wrong. I also... Do not avoid it. Just don't watch it first. I think it sets a bad tone Mm. for the series. So, really quickly, the premise of the series, the premise of the episode is established in the first five minutes. Yes. Princess has been, this is all in uh, uh, the United Kingdom. Princess has been kidnapped. There is no ransom demand. The only demand is that for her safe release, the prime minister must have intercourse with a pig. And, and that's the episode, folks. And, and the, the technological dystopia of it all is how social media and leaving comments really directs the news cycle and how people, should he do it or shouldn't he do it? So that was a good one. Um, I also watched 15 Million Merits, which is a, and again, premise is established very quickly. It is a Matrix reality TV mashup. It stars Daniel Kaluuya. So like, if you want to see Daniel Kaluuya doing horror before Get Out, There you go. The last one in season one is The Entire History of You is written by Jesse Armstrong, who brought you that other horror series, Succession. I actually really like The Entire History of You. I think that's up there on my top episodes. I didn't didn't like it. It's basically the premise of this one is you can put an implant in your head that will allow you to like rewind, fast forward, relive things, um, keep copies, etc., um, security things, relationship things, or questions. Jody Whitaker's in this episode. So, I mean, that's probably the best part. Okay. I also watched, those are all of season one. That's 2011. Um, I watched a couple episodes from 2016's season three, Nosedive, written by Michael Schur and Rashida Jones, starring Bryce Dallas Howard, Alice Eve, and Cherry Jones, directed by Joseph Wright, who did the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice Pride and Prejudice and Atonement. This one is about social media likes. Not my favorite, despite the stacked cast and crew. Also watched Hated in the Nation uh, that has Kelly McDonald and Benedict Wong. So that's a real Disney mashup. You got Brave and Wong together. That's that's a joke. Everybody should laugh. Um, ha, ha, ha. This one is also about social media. And then... Uh, I watched two from season four, uh, 2017, USS Callister. That might be the one that you may have the most awareness of. It won uh, awards along with San Junipero. USS Callister has Jesse Plemons uh, and Christine Milioti and Jimmy Simpson, who is also an Into the Dark Bloomhouse veteran. He's the only one that I know of who's done both. And Aaron Paul is in this one as well. It's the Star Trek episode. It's all about online gaming, trolls, fanboys. And then finally, I watched Metalhead, a very short Black Mirror episode, all in black and white. It is a Terminator Halloween mashup with a robot dog. Bark, bark. So there, I just gave you an entire list of things. Something probably interested you. I hope. Yeah, yeah. Uh, A lot of Black Mirror is really good. I've only seen the first two seasons because... It's really hard to watch. It's so oh, yeah. depressing. Except for San Junipero, which might be like the most cleansing thing I have ever seen. So huh. if, if you're looking for a Black Mirror episode that's going to make you feel really good after watching it, San Junipero, highly recommend. 
what were the standouts for you though, Sam? You you gave you gave this list. <laughs> so again, again, I will tell you. So basically, that is uh, all the ones that I named are the consensus about what the top half of all of Black Mirror is. There are twenty three episodes. Um, between the ones I had seen previously and the ones I've seen now, I've seen 11, so almost 50% of them. Those are the ones you'll see most consistently ranked the highest. So they all have good things. Um, Tessa's right. San Junipero is a really good jumping off point. That's not one I watched for this episode. But if you want to kind of get the idea about how technology is discussed and dealt with, but you don't want to be depressed, that's a good place to start. To me, the the best ones of the bunch that I watched now are USS Callister and I think Hated in the Nation. I really enjoyed Hated in the Nation. It's funny, that's the one I watched today, but it was really exciting. It is feature length, it's 90 minutes, but it's it's just fascinating. It's It's about that the way that we tend to devalue people when we talk about them or interact with them on social media, we forget that they're people and we forget that there are no consequences or we start to think that there are no consequences for what we do or say, even though there are real life consequences for what happens online. Weirdly, it connects to the first episode, the national anthem, which has very much the same theme. And I really enjoyed how some of these start to connect to each other thematically. You do not have to watch them in any order or you don't have to watch them all, but when you do, you start to see connections. And I thought that was pretty neat. Um, so Hated in the Nation was a really great standalone one, and it had some good payoff, you know, once you started to see more episodes. USS Callister, it, it was just a really fun episode. Jesse Plemons is acting against type, which is great. I, I really, really liked him since Friday Night Lights. He was great in Fargo. He's been great in anything he's ever been in, including this. Um, and Kristen, Kristen Milioti also is always great. And Plemons is surprisingly good in the unexpectedly fun comedy Game Night with uh, J- Jason Bateman. We have not watched that. We need to see that. Is, yeah. <laughs> Plemons is, is great. I, I am. I was so happy that he's in uh, Andy Kaufman's new movie. I'm thinking of ending things like I, I'm 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 a fan of Plemons and Kristen Milioti, who is also in Fargo. And so I'll also say just really quickly, uh, "Be Right Back" is the first episode of San. Uh, "Be Right Back" is the first episode of Black Mirror I ever saw years ago. So good, Haley Atwell, Donald Gleason. I mean, this is like this was like during a time where you had to have Donald Gleason or Oscar Isaacs in something. You like had to, or you couldn't make it. I would actually suggest Be Right Back and Ex Machina as a double feature. You can only watch one. What's the spookiest one? Uh, yeah, and that's the thing. I, you know, this is a horror anthology, but it's kind of off-brand for, for Halloween. It's not necessarily ghouls and ghosts and stuff. It will scare you, but just not in the Halloween monster mash way. So if I had to pick one for Halloween, long pause while I think about the answer, and you can edit it out, so... Or will I? Maybe the horror is in the waiting. Metalhead is the Halloween choice because you should watch it. You should double feature it with with your pick, Andy. Watch it with Halloween. Put the two together. Make it a night. I think that's a good idea. Let's do that. Okay. We will be doing a uh, a Halloween monkey off my backlog uh, watch night where we'll go ahead and record a commentary as Halloween is playing. We won't really do that, but I'm going to say we're going to do it. Are you going to do your best scream queen impression, Andy? Uh, so I'm a very jumpy person. There will be a lot of screaming, even if I've already seen the movie. So we're going to go from technological horror to to something from a simpler time. Tessa, tell us about Love Witch. The Love Witch, actually. It's the From Love 2016. Witch. From 2016. Is it from 2016? It is, in fact. So The Love Witch from 2016, because I'm going to say it a dozen more times, 
is it's kind of difficult to describe the genre of this film. I think I can describe it better about what it is visually. It's imitating 60s horror uh, films, but it's imitating it in a way that reminds me a little bit more of like the 70, early 70s grindhouse. So it's sort of an imitation of an imitation in some ways. It is kind of an art film. It's definitely, it was praised for its use of imitating Technicolor. It's very campy. It's, it is a horror film that is based around a witch uh, named Elaine who moves into a small town and who is looking for love amongst all the men of the town. And she has a bunch of men fall in love with her who then die in mysterious circumstances afterwards. So that's sort of the premise of this movie. It's very, very campy, which I want to get into here in a minute. It is directed, written, edited, produced, and scored by Anna Biller, who is the anti-Shane Carruth, I believe, at this point. This is much better than anything he's done, and she's doing all the work in much the same way that he does for his movies. She also, and that doesn't even include all of the the work that she put into making the sets for this thing. Uh, A shout out to M. David Mullen, who was the cinematographer on this, um, who won awards for his lighting um, in this particular film. It stars Samantha Robinson, uh, Gian Keyes, Jeffrey Vincent Paris, Jared Sanford, Robert Seeley, and Jennifer Ingram. And yeah, this is a this is a pretty solidly Halloween campy movie. So unlike Black Mirror, where it's more technological horror, this is this is about witches. Those witches. So you said it was released in 2016, but it doesn't look like it was released in 2016. It looks like it belongs back in the 70s, maybe, doesn't it? Yeah. So again, and I'm going to ask you to explain, uh, you said this when we were watching it too. So it's going for a very 60s look. All the clothes sort of look like they're from the 60s, the cars, the sets, the lighting is that sort of uh, hard lighting from the classic Hollywood movies. The, The makeup and the hair are very 60s. But the 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 quality of the film, the way that it's acted, it reads very much like a B movie, and that's on purpose. So that's why I sort of bring in the grindhouse uh, sort of aesthetic to it, um, because they're very purposely trying to imitate those those B Hollywood uh, horror flicks um, that were coming out around that time. And Sam, explain your metaphor for the uh, the seventies grindhouse versus the sixties horror. So if you if you think about films from the late 60s, uh, I can even give you a horror film as an example, Rosemary's Baby. Think about those as like brand name Cheerios, right? So you go to the grocery store and you can buy the brand name Cheerios or you can buy the store brand. So the 70s grindhouse movies are like store brand late 60s top quality film. They, they really emulate the aesthetic in many ways, but of course the production value isn't as high and the film, film stock degraded pretty quickly, so you got what you got. That's kind of where we are here. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of what I feel like she's imitating, um, is sort of the, the grindhouse imitation of those 60s films. This was one of the last films to cut an original camera negative on 35mm film. There's a lot of attention paid, paid to those types of details, like I said. And the set pieces are just beautiful, but they're beautiful in a way that's very campy and very purposefully feels low budget. Why don't you tell him what it's about? So uh, I, I kind of explained the premise of the plot, and this is not a movie that relies on a lot of intricate plot. I basically told you the plot of the movie, like she moves into this town and all havoc ensues amongst the men. But, but what's the subtext? There has to be subtext. There's so much subtext in this film. So obviously, the way that witches are presented in this film, that she's not the only witch. There are, there's a whole coven of witches. They are sort of used metaphorically for, uh, for women, uh, for female power, through sexuality, um, through nature. So there's a lot of that going on in this film as well. But it's also sort of a metaphor for the heterosexual fantasy turned horror. Uh, Elaine is definitely very unstable. Like she shows up to this small town and she's like, 
she's all dolled up and she's very almost Stepford wife like she's just like I just want to love a man and like you just have to treat a man like a child and he just needs someone to take care of him and she's she's saying all these things that are very very anti-feminist but it's very clear that no man can actually live up to her fantasy of what love is which is why she gets tired of them and then they die horribly um so she is you know so there's a lot there about sort of the way that society or pop culture teaches us how love should look like and how that ultimately doesn't live up to the fantasy but then the reverse is true as well we actually get so we get a lot of inner voice uh overs from elaine but we also get voiceovers from some of the men who are involved too and they have their own fantasies that they're projecting on elaine that of course she can't live up to or that are very uh misogynistic as well so there's a lot of that going on. This is a very campy film. Samantha Robinson, I, her performance is just wonderful in this. It's highly stylized. Um, she's very sexy. There's a lot of nudity in this film. I will also say that. She is also very campy, but she is playing this character who cares a lot about what she's doing, but is ultimately unable to grasp sort of to sort of realize what she wants, even though she says that magic is all about making what you want happen. So that's kind of wonderfully done in this film as well. Again, there are a lot of like really weird 70s witchy like set pieces. Her house in this film is amazing. It's like this Victorian gothic house and the inside is all like there's a pentagram rug like i said at the beginning of the episode anna biller actually made that rug and it took her six months to make it that's the attention to detail for this particular piece there are paintings all over the walls of this house that have like naked witch rituals on them there's like chemistry bottles everywhere um the humor is really good at one point she actually says you know do you know that 98 percent of men have never seen a used tampon and it's just it's this really really just very funny humor while also being very horrific at the same time in talking about this film you know you talk about how uh the subtext the subtext here is witches and 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 the modern world and America and blah blah blah. Couldn't I just watch Winona Ryder's performance in The Crucible and get the same thing? Like, doesn't The Crucible really tell us everything we need to know about witches and persecution and women in America? Should we watch this film instead? Yes, you should watch Love Witch. And I'll tell you a couple of other reasons why. One, Elaine's eyeshadow and eyeliner is a mood and character all of itself in this particular film. It is wonderful. Is it like New Second, York City? Oh, yeah. It's just like New York City. It's a character. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> also, there's this really interesting dynamic. So one of the, the core tenets of this film is that the witches are all tapping into this like female power, right? Like they're all like men don't respect women and they have abused women and killed women. And so we just need to use that power against them, you know, get them all hot and bothered and then do whatever we want with them. But the funny ironic part of this is that while the coven of witches is mostly women, the person who's in charge of it is this really gross old dude who's clearly like co-opting this feminist language to like, you know, get with some of these hot women. And so it's, it's this, it, it is a very, very smart, very stylish, very just, it's just a mood. It's just a whole thing. And I, I think that if you are interested in this style of filmmaking alone, that should convince you to watch this. But if you're interested in any of the things I said, you should watch it as well. You heard it here first. Throw the 1996 adaptation of The Crucible starring Winona Ryder and Daniel Day-Lewis in the trash and watch The Love Witch instead. Uh, and also, I will say, because I know this isn't for everybody, uh, watch the trailer. If you're, if you're at all on the fence about this, just watch the trailer. It's two minutes. It'll give you some clips of what this film looks like. If it's the kind of thing that you are like, yeah, I'm really into what this looks like, watch it. If this isn't your thing, Probably skip it. You you won't like the, how the rest of the movie looks uh, if you don't like how the trailer looks. All right, Andy, the moment we've all been waiting for that we've been teasing the whole episode. 
What is Halloween 2018? So, man, this is such a bizarre uh, thing to describe because I, like, I genuinely do not know how to even begin to describe it. Okay, first of all, it's part reboot, part sequel. It's a sequel to the original Halloween movie, which, for those of you who do not know, came out year 1978 40 years before this movie came out and it was incredibly successful i think that this is it's not considered to be the the first slasher film you have psycho or uh, peeping tom or any other number of slasher films before this but this is one of the movies that's considered to be like the epitome of slasher movies you know halloween it's it's great it's directed by john carpenter it has an iconic theme. Uh, I can't do it justice here, but you can listen to it. And franchise went off the, the rails. Uh, it was attempted to be resurrected by Rob Zombie in 2007 and 2009. And David Gordon Green teamed up with uh, Jason Blum and a few other people to bring Halloween back. Are, are, are you talking about David Gordon Green? Danny McBride's most constant collaborator, David Gordon Green, who used to do prestige indie films and is now doing stuff with Danny McBride. Is it that David Gordon Green? Yes, yes. So, so, uh, actually, I I'm a big fan of David Gordon Green. Uh, he is a bizarre filmmaker from his uh, his insane movie uh, All the Real Girls. Then he did Pineapple Express. And Your Highness. And then he did two amazing indie movies in Prince Avalanche and Joe. Joe is an amazing Nicolas Cage movie. And Prince Avalanche is an amazing Paul Rudd movie. Highly recommend those. Uh, then he just randomly did like Our Brand is Crisis. Which uh, was a Billy Bob Thornton movie. Uh, and uh, I think Angelina Jolie. Uh, oh man. I, I feel I feel bad. Uh Yeah. Uh, Sandra Bullock and Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, anyway, uh, that that didn't do too well. But then he picked up and did this movie. This <laughs> insane, insane idea. Like, like you just don't think of the guy who did Pineapple Express for doing a horror movie. And uh, you you really left out the fact that he's directed several episodes of Eastbound and Down, Vice Principals, and The Righteous Gemstones. Right, and he also did uh, direct the amazing, uh, I believe, first film of Mythic Quest, Raven's Banquet. So, you know, if you have Apple TV, it's worth a watch. Uh, Mythic Quest, Raven's Banquet is is amazing. If, anyway, this movie is a sequel to the first Halloween movie, and it ignores the canon built by every other Halloween movie, and that's probably for the best. Uh, the I. I I've only heard. I, I really cannot say. I, I have. I've only watched Halloween. I haven't watched Halloween two, Halloween three, season of the witch, Michael Myers return, the revenge of Michael Myers, H two O, Halloween resurrection. H two O sounds like a terrible name <laughs> for a well, movie. Well, it 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 was Halloween twenty years later. Still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> and Mike uh, Myers became an amphibian and could breathe underwater. Nobody saw that movie. No, Nobody, no. Uh, that might as well be true. <laughs> this movie stars the Scream Queen from the first Halloween movie, Jamie Lee Curtis, as uh, Laurie Strode, which, by the way, she's c- considered to be one of the better Scream Queens, and I very much agree with this. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is is amazing, and I love her, and it, it's great. Um, my understanding is she didn't really... Uh, love playing Laurie Stroud for the the resurrection sequels right like it just became a like a token thing for her to kind of come back and do a little cameo uh I I really really don't know and I don't don't want to speak to that but she's playing a 40 year older Laurie Stroud who survived Halloween one spoiler alert for a 40 year 42 year old movie now at this point and and it's it's fascinating right the the movie tries to delve into what would actually happen to a person who survived a massacre like this. Uh, it's funny because uh, Michael Myers only kills five people in 
ho- the first Halloween. Anyway, so Jamie Lee Curtis is in this movie, and she's she has a focal narrative. I wouldn't say she has the focal narrative. Uh, she is someone who experienced this trauma and has to deal with this trauma with Michael Myers escaping and wrecking havoc. Uh, she has to deal with that. She is almost like a doomsday prepper. She She's terrified. Uh, this doomsday prepping has ruined her relationship with her daughter and has strained her relationship with her granddaughter. And it's, it, I really, really enjoyed this movie. Uh, I enjoyed how maturely it handled what this trauma would do to, could do to somebody, right? There are some people who have experienced trauma and are able to get over it and other people aren't. And that's, it's this thing that I love where, yes, she, she is a woman who experiences trauma. She is not going to let herself be a victim like that again. And the movie really embraces that. Uh, it, it really embraces the strength of Jamie Lee Curtis's acting and it embraces uh, violence against podcasters, which uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe we should talk about that a little bit where uh, the inciting incident to this entire thing uh, besides uh, Michael Myers being transferred and a entire uh, bus crash happening is actually two uh, podcasters coming in and trying to do a uh, serial true crime style podcast on the Michael Myers babysitting killers uh, moment. Happy international podcast day, everybody. (laughs) Uh, and we're recording we're, we're recording on September 30th. So now you know the magic. Yeah. Uh so so it, it it's it's truly truly fascinating um to to, to see podcaster and and that's like one of the things where David Gordon Green gets it. He gets what modern day uh journalism is. He understands podcasting and it's not like a joke. These people take it very seriously. But it's it's just it feels so realistic. Like, yes, this is exactly what these people would be doing if this was a murder that happened. Some podcast somewhere would be glorifying it in a weird way. Um, yeah. And they would all be trying to interview Michael Myers. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Like, like they would be trying to. Uh, he pulls out the Michael Myers mask, which, you know. Uh, one of the best known trivia ever is a Michael is a William Shatner mask that was turned inside out and painted white. Uh, and I want to know if it's still a William Shatner mask. Like, do they just have custom made Michael Myers masks for these movies now? Or is it still like to get that authenticity? Do they still use like a, <laughs> you, you know, with, with the quality of this mask, I almost think that it is the same Michael Myers mask. Like, like, like the, the quality is it has, it has, it is a mask that has been around for 40 years. It was not made with the best rubber. Right. So it's this eerie, it's almost the mask, but it feels aged and decrepit. And the film does a great job of not showing you Michael Myers face until he puts on the mask, which I, I love that. Um, I, I really, really love some of the camera work in this. Uh, and I'm really trying not to spoil it because there, there's just some great uh, horror slasher moments there. It, it's gory, but it's not, um, gr- it's not like overly gratuitous. Michael Myers is stronger than normal humans, but he's not uh, super humanly strong. This this movie feels like it's it just the right way to do a spiritual sequel and an actual sequel to something uh, with by someone who really has a respect for the original material, but but with podcasters this time, R- right, right, uh, and yeah. and it's 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 not a spoiler really to say that the podcasters are the <laughs> among mm-hmm. the first victims, uh, uh, and, and and you hate them, you you do not like these people. I think this is a really good time, and you can cut this out. That's the theme of the episode today. But since we're talking about podcasters' dream guests, I want to just say my dream guest on this podcast is somebody 
or somebodies who hopefully wouldn't murder us. And I'm, of course, talking about Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse. This would be a great time to do our podcast within a podcast. Has Tessa seen Lost yet? On this episode of Has Tessa Seen Lost Yet? No. This has been Has Tessa Seen Lost Yet? So, Andy, does it live up to the expectations of the original? Because Halloween, as you mentioned, is such an iconic film. Like, I kind of want to go watch it again now that you've just been describing the sequel. So does this does this live up to the hype? Yes, yes, absolutely. This movie lives up to the hype. Uh, I, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I don't think this is not a movie that will convince anyone who is not a Halloween fan that Halloween is a good movie, but it lives up to the hype. It is. It it feels like it is made lovingly <laughs> like like that's such a weird thing to talk about uh, a horror movie but this really is a movie that is crafted by people who love the first movie uh they even have the little nudge nudge wink winks to the other movies uh you know uh er- early on someone teenagers ask uh, each other like oh well what i thought i thought it was her brother who did it and she says oh, well that's just a rumor someone made up and that's a reference to the other movies, right? This is establishing canon, but also David Gordon Green's indie writing chops come in here because the writing between characters feels very real and he understands how teenagers interact with each other. He understands a lot of this and he even understands the pompousness of a uh, of an NPR BBC podcaster who who feels like they're doing a great story and is really being just incredibly invasive and digging up traumas uh, that they don't need to be digging up. I also, when I watched it, I really appreciated the relationship between uh, Laurie Stroud and her daughter, who's played by uh, Judy Greer. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So Judy Greer plays a, you know, her, uh, Laurie's estranged daughter who is very against this idea that the world is a dark place and and Jamie Lee Curtis is you know had the trauma and Judy Greer theoretically understands that her mother went through trauma but does not understand the I mean until this movie but she she just she does not understand it she holds a resentment against her for for the uh, paranoia and trauma growing up uh, there there's all these interesting things and Judy Greer is amongst my top actors. We spoke about Jurassic World and Judy Greer is in Jurassic World. Judy Greer is in everything. She needs to be in everything. She is, uh, Sam, one of my top podcast hosts to get. So, uh, Judy, I, I know you're you're listening. Get in touch. Uh, but also don't murder us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ju- <laughs> Judy, don't, don't. Don't don't kill us. But also, I I, I love Judy Greer so much. <laughs> so so this is a recommend from you. This, this is an absolute recommend. Uh, also, just to really quick, I want to plug uh, the Ant Man movies where Judy Greer plays Paul Rudd's ex wife. Uh, just I forgot that she plays Paul Rudd's ex wife in those movies. That's true. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah. So she is in the MCU. Um, so would you recommend Halloween, Halloween 2018 as a double feature for perhaps people who haven't seen the original? 10,000%. 10, that is the perfect way to experience this. I, I cannot think of a better way to get into the slasher movies. Uh, I, I, I really, really love this movie. Uh, yeah. Recommend. Hashtag don't kill podcasters. Uh, all, all right. I, I think that's it, right? <laughs> I, I, we did it. We did it all. There's lots all right. of good. Re, there's lots like, of good rapport in this episode. I feel like we gave some really good, like diverse recommendations in this episode. Like, if you're not as interested in slasher, maybe you would be interested in Black Mirror, which is more technological horror. If you're more interested, I think it's in existential sort of, and cosmic. Yeah, existential and cosmic. If you're more interested in, say, something that's more campy and more like classically, you know, witch witchy, love witch. 
And if you're interested in a classic slasher Halloween, I, th- I think we covered some ground on this episode. You know what you should do? You should come back next week when we continue Spooktober, where Sam will see what creepy horror Stephen King has been up to lately. Tessa will grow some horns and I will experience a horrific color from another world. Where can people find you, Sam? I'm on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine and on Letterboxd at Archie Leach nine. Tessa. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. All right. And I do want to say real quick to our uh, huge influx of listeners that we've been getting lately. Hey, uh, if you have any feedback, because you're probably podcast listeners, give us some feedback. Uh, but you can find me on Twitter at Hebrews Paleo. Our theme song Hot Shot by Scott Holmes can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Send us your thoughts about your spooky movies or the spooky movies you want to get to, or maybe even the uh, Halloween movies that people should be watching. Uh and, you know, anything else pop culture related, find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Find us on YouTube, Stitcher, uh, you know, anywhere. And visit our oh, and Instagram. And our Instagram is at Monkey Backlog, just like everything else. Also, please go to popcultureshub.com and read our writings and rantings and ravings as we Talk about whatever's on our mind. All right, you guys, go get those monkeys off your back. This was a pop culture. Uh-